Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage this morning comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. Listen for what God is saying to you. During the rule of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron. They were both righteous before God, blameless in their observance of all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to become pregnant, and they both were very old. One day, Zechariah was serving as a priest before God because his priestly division was on duty. Following the customs of priestly service, he was chosen by lottery to go into the Lord's sanctuary and burn incense. All the people who gathered to worship were, pray were praying outside during this hour of incense offering. An angel from the Lord appeared to them, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw the angel, he was startled and overcome with fear. The angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your, pr your prayers have been answered. Your wife Elizabeth will give birth to your son, and you must name him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many people will rejoice at his birth he will be great in the Lord's eyes. He must not drink wine and liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. He will bring many Israelites back to the Lord their God. He will go forth before the Lord, equipped with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of fathers back to their children, and he will turn the disobedient to righteous patterns of thinking. He will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure of this? My wife and I are very old. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in God's presence. I was sent to speak to you and to bring the good news to you. Know this, what I have spoken will come true at the proper time. But because you didn't believe, you will remain silent, unable to speak until the day when these things happen. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered why he was in the sanctuary for such a long time. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he gestured to them and couldn't speak. When he completed the days of his priestly service, he returned home. Afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. She kept to herself for five months, saying, This is the Lord's doing. He has shown his favor to me by removing my disgrace among other people. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of this scripture. Good morning, everyone. Um, you didn't hear it earlier, my name is Emily McGinley. I don't actually think I actually said it. Um, uh, and I have the great joy of serving as a pastor here at Urban Village Church. And I have the privilege of standing here and seeing the first snowfall of the season. Uh, maybe some of you saw it uh, a little bit of shade if you were running late. Um, but uh, I didn't realize I was waiting for that. And so to, to the theme of Advent and holy waiting. Um, it now feels like December and winter. Please join me in a word of prayer. God, we give you thanks for the gift that it is to come together on um, warm days and cold days and in-between days um, 
but huddle together as a community of warmth around the light of your spirit. Set our hearts on fire, um, set our imaginations on fire, that we might see what you see and have the kind of courage that you created us to have to live it out, whatever that vision may call us toward. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So several years ago, um, my brother and I were walking down the street um, and on a sidewalk, and we're having this really kind of involved conversation. I don't remember exactly what we were talking about, but we were both kind of deeply into it. And I had just finished making my point, and he was about two to three words into his response before he disappeared. And, well, at least that's what it felt like. What had really happened was that he walked right into a parking meter. <laughs> and we, we were so focused on what we were talking about, neither of us had seen it coming. So we both laughed, and I was kind of amazed at how um, we were so oblivious to it. You know, sometimes we can kind of just be going about our business, and even with our wide, eyes wide open, right, find ourselves completely blindsided by something that not only was right in front of us, but we like walk in like a still thing, right? But we move, we walk into it. Well, in a way, I th feel like this is sort of where we find poor Zechariah in today's scripture. We've been in this sermon series about saying yes to God's yes to us. You follow? And even though our focus today is about Elizabeth's yes, about 95% of the scripture passage is dedicated to a buildup of what feels like Zechariah's huh? But you got to give Luke some snaps because he's the gospel writer who not only consistently and prominently features the badassery of women in regards to risky stuff that God asks people to do, the author also sheds serious ink to highlight all the people for whom those uh, upon uh, whose backs this gospel is truly built and for. The poor, the widowed, the forgotten, the outcast. And so, a little background. The passage sets us in a particular time and place during the rule of King Herod. And this tells us some things. In just a few words, we can know that this is a time of Roman occupation and rule. The way that the Roman Empire set things up essentially was to invade an area, subdue its citizens through Pax Romana, which is a direct translation of the Peace of Rome, um, or to directly translate it to English anyway. Um, but really what that meant were that people were just too afraid to speak up right? Law enforcement could do whatever they wanted to whomever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And all, so to complete this in, uh, illusion of peace, what the Roman government would do is take someone who was also willing to basically sell their people out and put them in power as the local heavy to keep the peace. So it seems like the people, well, they've got their own leader, right? And they're all happy because no one's causing any trouble. It's peace. So it's a tense existence that people, at least non-Roman people, um, were living in. And because this was, it was one of their own who ruled them, the Jewish religious authorities, the folks who were put in place as religious authorities, had this kind of uneasy existence, both with the people that they served and the puppet governor who kept them in check. They were allowed to practice their religion as long as they fell in line with the government. And so then what you got was a watered-down church. I mean, synagogue. A synagogue that was willing to endorse any political candidate and any political position so long as it meant that they could keep theirs for them. They went, still went through the motions of the temple rituals and maybe, probably, even did some of the ministries uh, that were important to their faith. Things like collecting food or clothing or even money for the poor and the widows. But addressing the root cause of those things, uh -uh. 
that's treading too close to the power structure. And I say all of this because it leads to the next thing that the author of Luke mentions right after talking about Herod. During this time, there was a priest who came from a priestly lineage named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, a woman who also came from a priestly lineage. They could be the it religious couple of Judea if it weren't for the fact that they were pretty old and never had a kid. But before I get to that part, I'm going to explain what's going on with this altar sacrifice thing that Zechariah is doing. So there are all these priests, people who, who kind of descend from a lineage of priests, and they get divided up into 24 groups. And each of these groups is responsible for conducting a sacrifice twice a year for one week. A sacrifice is offered twice a day on the outer altar and the inner sanctuary, and the names of the priests who had never served before got thrown into a hat. And whoever's name is selected is given the honor of doing the duty. This is a kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and so it's kind of a big deal when Zechariah's name gets called. But So he knows the drill. Clean the ashes off the altar, put in some incense, you know, bada-bing, bada-boom. This is like a five-minute task on a slow day. Easy-peasy, right? But then this angel shows up, and Zechariah is kind of freaking out, right? This is the altar, the dwelling of God. Nothing is supposed to happen here. <laughs> At least that's how they've gotten used to thinking about it, right? But Gabriel's cool. You know, he's like, sorry, didn't mean to sneak up on you like that. Um, but chillax, I'm here to tell you this amazing thing. And he goes on to outline in detail this plan that God has for Elizabeth to get pregnant, and they have this son, John, and he goes on to be this, like, crazy paleo hippie that stirs people up for this big thing that God wants to do, right? And after all of this, the, key, the first thing that Zechariah says is, how can I be sure of this? And you know Gabriel is like, super annoyed with him because he basically backhands him in an angelic kind of way. No speaking for you. I bet Gabriel was speaking in his most like pseudo calm parent voice, Zechariah, I want you to take some time and think about what you said. Because so help me God, if you ask me one more question, baby John might never be born. And now you know Zechariah had waited his whole life for this opportunity to perform at the altar. And then when God actually does something, he's surprised. What does that tell you about the state of the church when the pastors are surprised that God is doing something? What's going on here? Well, I recently read a blog post by this guy, Seth Godin, and I talk about him sometimes. He's a marketing guru and always has these really, at least to me, really interesting insights about kind of what comes down to is human nature. Because marketing, good, thoughtful marketing, effective marketing, is about really kind of understanding how people work so that you can sell them a bunch of stuff. Well, about a week or so ago, um, Seth talked about what he calls flash drives. And by this, he means these five emotions that, when left unrecognized, can take us away from our work, our mission, and ultimately our ability to make a difference. And of course, like any good term, FLASH is an acronym that stands for fear, loneliness, anger, shame, and hunger. When a variety of FLASH shows up, Seth says, it almost never calls itself by name. Instead, it lashes out. It criticizes what we've made or done, and mostly it hides behind words, arguments, actions, I would even say questions, incessant questions, instead of revealing itself. Flash drives can lead us to miss opportunities, make self-sabotaging decisions, and live with a reduced imagination. Our flash drives are powerful. 
And the way we deal with our flash drives is by owning them. Because if we don't, someone else will. Fear, loneliness, anger, shame, and hunger, they serve as excellent entry points for manipulation. And the truth is, if we do not identify, address, and ultimately own our flash drives, someone else will. From that, they will be able to own so much of how we live, how we interpret, and how we see the world. No one should have that kind of power over us. And so how do we change this? Well, like so many of the annoying paradoxes about Christianity, in order to live, we must first die. And this means that we have to humble ourselves enough to not only admit that we have flash drives, but then begin to understand how it's showing up in our lives and getting in the way of our ability to live faithfully and make a difference. Can you think of a flash drive that is present in your life right now? Everyone has at least one, and probably most of us have all of them, right? So start with one. Loneliness. How is that effing things up in your life? Just think about that for a second. The point isn't necessarily to get rid of it completely. Who will ever be completely free of fear, loneliness, anger, shame, and hunger on this side of heaven, right? So what you do is you recognize it for what it is, and you identify how it is driving your decisions and your behavior or perspective or even impacting your relationships. Becoming aware of this is incredibly empowering because um, now you know that it's there, right? You can name it, you can see how it's showing up and what it's doing. And the next step, of course, will begin to dismantle its power or channel it in ways that fuel something life-giving. But of course, in order to do that, we need to make time and space for that kind of deep reflection and self-work to happen. So last week in our starting point small group, we talked about our spiritual practices. And in so many ways, spiritual practices give us an opportunity to not only become aware of the things that hold us captive in our lives, things like our flash drives, but also begin to dismantle their power over us. Because what spiritual practices are is us showing up to God, stepping into our holy spaces, not unlike what Zechariah was doing, right? Showing up. Whether that's on the bus, on our daily commute, or the minutes after waking up, or just before going to bed, or even what, the time that we spend on our lunch breaks, through spiritual practices, we show up to God and we position ourselves to encounter God. We create a crack in the surface of our lives for something unexpected to shine through. So I recently heard a story told by Elsa Waith, a comedian, who decided to join a Black Lives Matter protest in Times Square, and I thought I would kind of share part of her telling that story. So we've got an audio clip here for that. And so now once we get to Times Square, we've met up with other groups. And at this point, it's massive. Uh, so we spread across the intersection um, and we all sit down. Um, and sure enough, the riot cops step up. And the riot police all have the, the face masks, the face guards. And a part of their thing is to be very intimidating. And you can't see anybody's face. Um, and they're really big, and it's just one sort of stormtrooper sort of thing of very scary police officers. And at this point, you guys, I'm, I'm, I'm really nervous. I'm really scared because they've given a dispersal warning, and people are getting flustered, and people are starting to leave. And those of us who are sitting down, uh, it's dwindled. There's also lots of cameras here, so I've kind of made my stand. I don't want to get up, okay? Because <laughs> people are going to see that. And uh, I'm just kind of trying to find a zen place. I'm just trying to look around and just 
find something to focus on. And um, really, all I'm seeing is my reflection in all of these face masks. Uh, until I get to one officer <laughs> who has not put her face mask down, you guys. And uh, it was just the most angelic face. <laughs> It was very delicate inside of this. And like, it almost didn't seem like she even wanted to be there, you know? I was transfixed. And um, the, uh, the sergeant, he says, line up. And uh, I realized that they're lining up in front of who they're going to arrest and she's lined up with me. <laughs> and he gives one more dispersive warning. He says, you have 30 seconds to get out of the street. Uh, you are obstructing traffic. If you do not get out of the street, you are subject to arrest. And I says, well, her? There's a good... <laughs> The sergeant gets on the megaphone and he says, okay, that's it. Whoever's here, round them up. And uh, so she leans in and she says, you're going to have to, you're going you're gonna to have to come with me. And, and um, I realize I'm, I'm, I'm being filmed. There's lots of cameras. Flash bulbs are going off everywhere. And so I wanted to be really thug and gangster about it. You know what I'm saying? You know? I was like, in my, in my mind, I said, yeah. You're going to have to pick me up. But I think what actually came out was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> she, uh, she picks me up, and she, she turns me around, and uh, she goes to put the, uh, the, the zip ties, the flex cuffs on me. And it was, it was really, uh, she put them on really tight, you guys. And, and I wanted to be upset. But I kind of liked it. I don't know. Like... <laughs> um, and like, here's the thing, you guys. Uh, I, I was part of the first um, 10 people to be arrested in New York City in conjunction with, with, the, with these non-indictments. They were calling us the Times Square 10. Um, my picture was like everywhere. Like in the morning when I woke up, it was on CNN. It was on Yahoo News. And so all my friends back home, they see these pictures, and, you know, everyone's like, wow, you look really calm amongst all this chaos. <laughs> what was going through your mind, you know? And, <laughs> like, I wanted to tell people, like, you know, something really, like, poignant, you know? Like, you know? I was thinking about, you know, civil rights, and I was thinking about Dr. King, and, and I wanted to tell you that it was all those things, but really it was just like, holy shit, there's a lot of cameras. Her hands are soft. <laughs> so she shows up to this protest, right, because she's ready to live out her values more deeply. She's ready for something that, to, to get into something that might matter to her. And what she came face to face, face with in a pretty intimidating situation was some, something that was completely unexpected, right? 
And her receptiveness to this inconvenient crush kind of carried her through an experience that might have scared her away from ever having shown up to a protest again. It's a funny story, but there's a kind of thread of grace running through it all, don't you think? Showing up in spite of fear and intimidation created this crack that allowed something new and unexpected to move through. Now, the author of Luke, you were probably wondering when I was going to get back to that, the author of Luke tells us which drive was at work in Zechariah, fear. And I'm going to be honest, I feel him, right? I'm a pastor, and my faith is by far from perfect, even though faith is my highest score on the gifts uh, inventory in the starting point group. Zechariah had one job, believe, and he flubbed it in a pretty embarrassing way. Because what happened? It wasn't just that Zechariah had asked how it could be possible that Elizabeth could be pregnant. It wasn't that he, it was that he didn't believe it was possible, right? And maybe that sort of sounds like splitting hair, so let me put it this way. There's a difference between, huh, that's really interesting, tell me more about it, and, huh, how is that possible? We're too old. You hear it? One is curiosity, and the other one is skepticism. But in spite of Zechariah's heavily mediocre performance as a bearer of the faith, God still does what God plans to do. And of course, when you compare Zechariah with Elizabeth's response, we're reminded again that the most faithful and the most key people are often not the ones who stand at the center of things or even get to weigh in on decisions that impact them. Some things still never change, right? And so we don't get a conversation between Gabriel and Elizabeth the way that we do between Gabriel and Mary, but that's for next week. What we get is that Zechariah heads home and Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And finally, when the deed is done and the bun is in the oven, finally here, like a hook that is so subtle we didn't realize is carrying the song along, we hear Elizabeth's voice full of wonder. This is the Lord's doing. He has shown his favor to me by removing my disgrace among other people. As far as we can tell, she doesn't have a choice. But she says a gracious, generous, and abundant yes to the mystery and miracle of God's movement in her life. There's a pretty well-known verse written by the late singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen, and it goes like this. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. Sometimes, simply showing up is the crack that God needs to shine up, shine through. And sometimes that crack is just enough to usher in a surprising beauty and light, a a mysterious, wondrous darkness that helps us grasp, even for a moment, God's strange but beautiful movement in the world. Love, or at least the distant imitation of it, can show up on the front lines of a protest movement between positional adversaries. Love can act in spite of a second-rate, huh, from a person who has at least shown up to do their faith's duty. Love love can even move through the faithful acceptance of circumstances beyond our control and decisions that are made beyond our pay grade. Love moves through the cracks and the crevices of our being and our living. And so this Advent, as we think about what does it mean to let the light shine in, to grasp the mystery of the darkness, Maybe it begins with saying to yourself, forget your perfect offering and ring the bells that still can ring. Just make sure that there are enough cracks for the light of love to get in. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks 
that you do so much with so little, that you take our imperfect offerings and our imperfect bells and you make beautiful songs out of our lives. So help us to create cracks in our lives that you can shine through. Help us to position ourselves in spite of whatever flash drives might be at work in our hearts and our minds or unbeknownst to us, to begin to own ourselves, all of us, so that you can do something that is mysterious, that is beautiful, and that is surprising. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.